The presenting sponsor for On Education is Classcraft. We're so excited to announce Classcraft's new story mode, which makes it easy for educators to harness the power of stories. But that's not all. Have you ever wanted to see yourself as a character in a story? Now teachers and students can create their custom game avatars and see them come to life on an augmented reality poster. To learn more about Classcraft's story mode and the new AR experience, simply visit classcraft.com. This thing where you're coming into school and you need to borrow some money and then eventually you get that job, but that job doesn't pay as much as you thought it was going to pay or whatever. 35 grand a year for an entry level job. And then you're just paying on that student loan for the rest of your life. Welcome to On Education. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will discuss the need to take social-emotional learning out of its silo, how schools are struggling to teach about slavery, the proposals to free us of student loan debt, and our guest this week is author and educator A.J. Giuliani. So, like an hour ago, the women won the World Cup. They did. The U.S. US women. This is Sunday, and we record on Sundays, and they just won the World Cup, and uh, super proud of them. Uh, super proud of their efforts, and I I wanted to make sure that we took the time though to talk about equity, and just uh, we just talked about equity in esports with uh, Steve Isaacs, but the yeah. equity in in women's uh, in this case uh, soccer is just ridiculously uh, disproportionate. There's no equity right now, so they they're truly not only fighting for uh, you know to win the World Cup, which they have again. They're just the super dominant team uh, of the sure, last. Yeah few decades not even just a decade but the last few decades um mm-hmm. but they still earn so much less money in these performances than men do and yet the sport of women's soccer is super popular in the united states as far as uh how much viewership they get sponsors and all of these types of things as far as for the networks uh but we uh, were pulling up some information and basically uh, when you include all the bonuses, a man can earn up to two hundred and sixty-three thousand uh, dollars, if if depending upon the performance uh, of their team, and women would earn just basically thirty-eight percent of that income, which is about ninety-nine thousand. Um, not even to say as far as the inequities in professional sports themselves, where women yeah. are playing professional soccer but not earn earning a pen, you know, just pennants compared to a, a man. Um, yeah. And even the the U.S. Soccer Organization, so U.S. Soccer awarded men's team five point three million dollars for losing in the round of sixteen. So just basically making it to the to the qualifying just round it into the yeah to the qualifier uh, to the just basically the brackets. Basically, they make it past the the qualifiers and then into the bracket. They award them five point three million, and the women win the World Cup and they get one point seven towards basically <laughs> these programs. By the way. And the reason why that's important is that those monies go towards basically recruitment and development of your teams and everything right. else that goes within these organizations. So it's just a ridiculous thing. And you would think that by now, and that's what most of these articles are talking about, is we were talking about this like 20 years ago. And you would think by mm-hmm. now there would be equity and, and there is not. And it just like in, in the, in, let's call it the real world, uh, in the professional world, whatever it might be, there's still not equity there. And it's just ridiculous. And hopefully, uh, you know, people 
or start listening and maybe some some people will step up and then start actually making this equitable between men and women. This uh, this team in particular, this year's team, was really in the news quite a bit um, because of some of their their stars and and being kind of anti-Trump and all of this stuff. So uh, I imagine that actually gave the ratings quite a, a boost. I, I I know a lot of people were watching the game today just just based even on my you know my Twitter feed and looking at the comments and stuff like that. And so, you know, we know that the amount of money they're bringing in is probably related to advertising revenue. But um, you can see, you know, that there would definitely be a boost in ratings this year for sure with all of the, you know, the high profile um, women uh, that are, um, uh, you know, quite um, important figures and outspoken and and really uh, strong, strong women. Uh, it's it's been fun to see the the conversation and uh, the attention put on them and their performance, and I'm glad that they were able to to come through. It was it was pretty exciting. Pretty I, exciting. I, stuff. I just love this is my favorite part. Was my favorite part of the game, the most pressure packed part of a uh, of a soccer game would be that someone would step up for a penalty kick. Yeah, and anybody can step up for a penalty kick and. Uh, Rapino steps up and makes basically the first goal and basically the winning goal, though they won 2-0. It was the the winning margin there. Uh, though you know there's so much pressure on her shoulders, not just from her teammates yeah. from the United States soccer organizations, women in general, and, and then, of course, the media, and then, of course, uh, Trump from his idiot comments that he makes towards her, and she still makes the goal, which is, just shows you just how fantastic of a athlete that, that she is and that yeah. they all are and that they deserve yeah. basically the equivalent of what men are making. So yeah. Amazing. Yes. Good for, good for them. Good for her. Um, so, you know, if you were at ISTE 2019, it was pretty tough to, not that we needed to, but it was pretty tough to avoid the phrase social emotional learning. It, it, it was kind of everywhere um in in every product was looking to embed aspects of social emotional learning into their offerings and there was tons of sessions and and speeches and talks related to social emotional learning and now there's an article on edsearch that actually referenced isc 2019 and some of our our partners like classcraft and also just isc 19 and how it seems like social emotional learning is really coming into its own as a, a, a pedagogical concept that we should be talking about a lot, right? Yeah, and rather than labeling it as like a soft skill, it's actually being put at the forefront and saying, hey, this is super important uh, for the development yeah. of our students. And we should be, uh, number one, like knowing wh what is this? What does it actually mean? And then number two, how do we go about uh, embedding it into how we do business at school? Just like when we talk about technology, uh, you know, technology integration. And then eventually we just said it just the way that we do business, social emotional learning should be just the way that we do business in schools and the way that we go ahead and develop our students as a whole, not just mm -hmm. as these uh, students who are uh, academically inclined or whatever. We're just focusing on the academics. Uh, so I really love that. I love that uh, this article was written because we were just talking about this and how it was a great a thing that it was being brought up to the forefront. And then all of these companies are 
our understanding that it should it's an important part of teaching and learning today and that we should carry this forward so it's not what i think is like a you know a come and go kind of thing where it's here this year and then never again uh, it's something that should be embedded as far as in our education and our educational processes and then all of these companies are definitely following suit we want our students to be able to see themselves in their learning and i think it's been way too slow coming uh where we have uh tools where that factor is embedded directly into them. And so when you see things like Flipgrid, for example, is a good example, probably some of the Adobe products where they give you the openness to allow your own voice as a student to be embedded in that product so that you can speak from your perspective as opposed to the perspective you're being told to speak from. This is like it needs to be a core value. This is actually what the article even talks about as a core value of the design cycle of product development, where students see themselves and their life experiences reflected in the tools that they're using to learn. I think that there's no better way to demonstrate social emotional learning than that, especially from a technology perspective. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this. I just love uh, that we are super hyper focused on it and that we will continue to learn. And maybe we can even bring on guests. That's what I was thinking, Mike, uh, that to talk about this topic specifically and, mm-hmm. uh, and teach other teachers, like how do we get started with this and how do we make sure that we are doing what we can as each individual teacher in our classrooms? I was pretty blown away. It was funny because I was reading just a couple nights ago, an article in Edweek about a social studies curriculum that apparently gets, you know, used all over the United States um, as a as a kind of a worksheet sort of curriculum. And it had this ridiculous question on it that it forced students to view um, the the um, the business of plantations and slavery through the eyes of the slavery owner the slave owner yes yeah, and made them made them write uh, a sentence about the inequity of abolishing the slave trade uh based on the impact it would have on the on on a, on a slave master it's it's astounding to me that i even just said those words and and but then you put in the show notes just last night Another another article about the ex- almost exact same thing about schools struggling with how to teach slavery and how to talk about slavery at school. It's it's astonishing to me. Yeah. And I mean, in that article, the second article that I was talking about talks about an incident that happened probably 10 years ago um, and uh, basically where a teacher did played they played a game called escaping slavery and they actually labeled some african-american students and made them be the slaves i mean it was it's just really gross and and i mean basically talk about how that traumatized this specific student uh and who is now a senior or going to graduate from high school um and those kinds of things are just i mean you don't come back from that. I mean, that's kind of yeah. just just really, really on the edge of disgustingness. And same thing with that curriculum that you're talking about. It's like you think that we would be way out 
away from this, but uh, no, we're right in the middle of it. So we want to make sure that we let people read the articles and that they can they can uh, decide for themselves, like what you know what ha- is happening here. But man, we still are having a hard time talking about how how do we actually teach about slavery and how do we talk about the South and what happened and wh- and what do we do as far as to be able to move forward and. You would think that we're still two different countries uh, at times, uh, and it's it's just crazy when you see things like this because it is happening, and this isn't something old. You know these things. This is something that happened this past week, so it's just ridiculous. This this product, this um, social studies publication, is called Studies Weekly, and like I said, it's it's being used in California, in Florida, in a bunch of states as almost like the official curriculum documents of social studies yeah. for that those 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 states please friends have some critical thinking skills just because something gets handed to you from you know up on high wherever it might come from please look at it before you you know photocopy it and send it out or scan it and throw it in your google classroom or wherever you're going to put it because you know it's clear that there's some lack of thought being put into um, the sensitivity aspect of, of these questions and whether the, the framing of this should be um, put up, put this way at all. Um, Dan Carlin, who's a, a very popular podcaster in the history space. It's his podcast is called hardcore history. He talks a lot about how history eventually gets softened and rewritten so, for example, we idolize someone like Alexander the Great or uh, even Genghis Khan. You know, instead of talking about how Genghis Khan completely destroyed, you know, almost everybody in Iraq and decimated China at one point, um, we talk about the Silk Road. And that's what people remember about the legacy of the Mongols is the expansion of Mongolia that created a, that fostered the development of a trading route between Europe and, and Asia. And we don't talk about, you know, the brutal brutal um war state that mongolia created uh and you know so history you know changes over time or gets softened over time and it's it's unbelievable to me that at this point so soon to be honest in the history of the united states and the legacy of slavery uh, are we already trying to soften it um so that it's easier to swallow for some reason um, you know, I think that the easiest way to teach slavery is probably just to be brutally honest about it um, so that you can remember how awful a, a legacy it is uh, and then it never gets repeated. Um, but please think critically about this stuff um, that comes across your desk as if it's something that you're supposed to be photocopying and giving to your kids because it's right. I mean, it's not always going to be what you should be doing. When we come back... We're gonna take another. We're gonna take another crack at solving student loan debt. I, I think we're gonna get it this time. So stay tuned. On Education is brought to you by Pick My Kid. When my son was in first grade, he was put on the wrong bus. Pick My Kid is a product my son's school could have used. Pick My Kid is an automated dismissal solution that cuts car line times in half, engages parents with a parent app by being able to change dismissal routines right from their phone. Friends. That means no more front office calls. Pick My Kid is affordable for schools and removes dismissal stress for parents, teachers, and staff members. For more information, visit pickmykid.com. 
All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Student loan debt, in particular in the United States, is a massive issue. Um, but it's an issue that is going to be front and center, I think, in the 2020 election. Finally, uh, a centerpiece of an American election. And we wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about student loan debt and in particular student loan forgiveness because it is an important issue to educators. It is something that is in the back of everyone's mind and it is something that's coming up in the election. And not to mention that, I mean, even Glenn, you have some you know personal connections to this. This is all um, relevant to all of us um, and it's being talked about a lot now. And so just recently uh, a bill has been uh, introduced by Bernie Sanders and Ilhan Omar and Pramilia J. Paul. I'm going to get that name wrong, but uh, it was introduced uh, to eliminate tuition fees at all public four-year colleges and universities, make community college trade schools and apprenticeship programs tuition free and free, uh, no fee for everybody, and uh, eliminates $1.6 trillion in student loan debt for 45 million Americans. That's um, it's a big bill. Yeah, I mean, that's humongous. I don't know how far it'll get, yeah. and I don't know where it'll go, but at least it's, like you just said, front and center, uh, and it's actually proposed, and it's, you know, whether or not it, it passes right now, it doesn't matter. It's, it matters what happens as far as whoever ends up being the president of the United States in 2020 Hopefully, this is something that they can go ahead and go, okay, we need to go ahead and, and figure out a way to deal with this because 45 million people ha have student loan debt and many, many of us have crippling student loan debt where it actually affects the decisions that you are making in your life uh, as far as where, what kind of job you're getting, where are you going to go, how many jobs do you have to get, uh, whether or not you want to make a certain amount of money or not. Uh, so as far as in my case, I can only make up to a certain amount of money before basically it actually ends up working against me, uh, because, uh, that's, uh, my, my, uh, income is, is basically determining the payment that I have to make to my student loan company, which is really <laughs> just crazy psycho stuff. So you would think, okay, maybe I don't want to take this job because I actually would make more money. And then, so therefore I might end up having less money in the end because I wouldn't qualify, for example, for uh, some adjusted uh, types of, uh, of student loan payments. So it's just insane. If that was actually canceled, as it says here, $1.6 trillion in student loan debt just completely canceled. The question that we were putting out there to people is like, what would that do for you? Because I know that for a lot of people, that is the main thing that they worry about each day that they wake up. The main worry that when they go to bed each night, how are they going to or what are they going to do about this? And it doesn't go away if you file bankruptcy. It's one of the craziest things ever. It's uh, it's There is no way of getting away from it. So uh, the only way is if someone goes in and basically does something like this this bill, which uh, – and I know I saw some arguments on there uh, as far as uh, when we put it out on Twitter as far as against this. Yeah. Um, those people, I don't know. I mean, I know who they actually are, you know, as far as the thing goes. But I would want to ask them, uh, do you have 
crushing student loan debt because if you did i think you'd be on the other side of this you know you'd be because because what's happening is basically some people are going like well yeah you know maybe we shouldn't do that uh maybe we shouldn't just give education to everybody that wants it because it'll make it less valuable uh i saw that as far as a proposal but the whole thing is is that um we what we're currently doing is not working and it's going to blow up and I mean, that's just where we're headed. Every economist is saying that it just continues to pile up. And then so therefore we go, OK, so what are we going to do next? What if we can't pay? What if we all right. default? So what happens next? So um, at least Bernie Sanders and Representative Omar and, and, and Representative Jay Paul have, have an idea about how to go ahead and deal with this. And it's in some of the platforms for the other some other 2020 candidates, um, Elizabeth Warren in particular has um has a plan for that i guess just like she has plans for for everything which is which is good uh we did put this out on twitter and there was some pretty interesting things that i was i guess i'm a little bit surprised because there's there's definitely some sunlight here between um the the way that the united states works with student loans and in canada so there are student loans in ontario the ontario student loan uh, Ontario Student Assistance Program. It's called OSAP. Um, so I have OSAP loans still. Um, Cheryl paid hers off a, a couple of years ago. Um, but I think that the biggest difference as far as the actual loans, we, we can get into some of the societal differences later because I think there are some differences from a societal perspective as well. But um, if I'm not mistaken, OSAP loans are um are fit are a fixed um interest rate of of prime plus 2.5 so that's quite a bit lower than some of these interest rates i was seeing on twitter i saw someone say their interest rates on their loan was 16 percent which is crazy um like that's that's predatory Mm -hmm. that's in you know that's almost credit card that's higher than some credit card interest rates is your loan uh given by the government it's underwritten by the government. It's through a through a bank. Okay, but it's but it's underwritten by the by the government of Ontario. Um, but you know this, yeah, it's Prime plus two point five. So so right now Prime I believe is two point seven in Canada. So we're at five point whatever that is five point two percent interest on on our on our student loans. Um, so very very small amount of interest. But you have I've seen these stories on on Twitter of people who's uh, because of the interest payments, uh, because of the interest, the actual loan costs, you know, it's worth more now than it was when it was given because of the interest yeah. uh, by substantial margins, even though they've been paying it off. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For for 20 years. Lots of examples it's, of that. Like 12 years later, you actually owe more than you started with, which is just psycho. I mean, if you could think about that, you're paying your payments but now you owe more than you started with, which is just, I mean, that's that's the whole concept of, you know, interest as far as interest on a loan. But this interest that we're talking about, this is what the biggest, uh, the big argument here is this. We took, I took this loan for my education to be able to do my yeah. job better, you know, whatever it might be, or to get a job first and then to be able to do my job better when I got my master's yeah. degree. This is about education. It's not about a loan that I took out to go ahead and buy a car or right. several homes because that's what really my loan is worth now, several homes. Uh, yeah. And so 
and and this article basically or this uh proposal also states that basically uh African Americans, Latinos and other minorities are basically disproportionately impacted by this. So you you yeah, ha- you have this this thing where you're coming into school and you need to borrow some money and then eventually you get that job, but that job doesn't pay as much as you thought it was going to pay or whatever. 35 grand a year for an entry level job. And then you're just paying on that student loan for the rest of your life. Uh, and so it, it's, it's wrong. I, I, and I really don't care what the other arguments are against it because nobody that has more than let's say $50,000 worth of debt right now, is going to argue against this. I, I seriously doubt it. So if you have that amount of crushing debt right now, you're like, I need to somehow be able to have this lifted off my shoulders and then be able to move forward. And actually Bernie's plan and other people's plans uh, uh, have say the same thing. Basically, what are we going to do with that money? Well, we're going to put it into our economy. So in the end, the U.S. economy wins. How do you actually pay for this one point, or sorry, $2.2 trillion cost of this bill? You put it on Wall Street, and they even have a plan for that. Uh, for them, it would be a minuscule amount of money that they're actually going to be paying for the amount of basically the speculation, the gambling that takes place on Wall Street. So uh, I think let's move forward with this. And God, I hope that we can get a candidate that wins huh. and that is, has this on the front, you know, front and center uh, because, my goodness, that would be humongous. There's so many yeah. – I mean, obviously – uh, it, it said 45 million people. That's 45 million Americans that will now not have that debt instantly. Man, they will it be would a great day. dramatically change the economy. I actually want to, I, I wrote a tweet that kind of got lost in, in how busy it was. This conversation ended up being pretty, um, pretty busy this morning um, when we were talking about it. And I had wrote something on it that I want to make sure I reiterate in the, the podcast as well, because imagine Trump, wins there's actually a pretty solid capitalist slash conservative ideology perspective for why we should subsidize post-secondary education from that viewpoint as well at least in in my mind and so it, it goes a little like this the the single largest benefactor of education just in general is the state the country um, both in the form of, of citizen, you know, the societal gains, the service gains, uh, and the increased income taxes because people, you know, when they're higher educated, they get, you know, more gainful employment, earn more money, pay more income tax. So, I mean, there are other benefits to higher education levels in a, in a country, but the country itself is who benefits the most. We're paying interest on loans or you're paying interest on loans so that you can pay more taxes. Mm -hmm. That's really what's happening here. You're paying interest on loans so that you can get a better job. You can go get your master's degree, your doctorate, so you can get a better job, make more money, pay more taxes. You're paying twice essentially to go to college. So, you know, if the state has the most to gain from education, shouldn't it be the ones footing the bill? That's like a, solid conservative viewpoint of this you know where you know conservatives hate taxes and they hate money going to like places that it shouldn't go you know and they enjoy keeping money in my own pocket kind of thing this is like a solid argument for subsidizing education from a right-wing almost perspective 
this makes sense on so many levels. I have a hard time understanding the arguments against it, to be perfectly honest. Um, and it brings me to what I think is one of the biggest differences, uh, at least between kind of the, a Canadian perspective, which isn't unanimously shared, but certainly I think um, the majority of Canadians would feel this way if I said this. And um, what I feel like is probably the majority perspective of, of, of Americans. And that's that I am more than willing to pay more than taxes for something that doesn't directly benefit me specifically. Um, I, well, student loan forgiveness in Ontario would affect me personally. Let's assume that it wouldn't. I haven't even thought about it. My amount of student loans is really low. I could probably pay it off at this point. I just don't because the interest rate is low. And so it's, it's not like it's creating this gigantic burden on me. Um, but I think that there's a cultural perspective that's different in Canada that uh, is, is interesting and unfortunate that I, I know for a fact that uh, if you pulled Canadians who said, you know, if you pay two or three dollars more uh, in taxes every year, uh, that would cover the cost for post-secondary education to be completely subsidized at its point of use. Would you be good with that? I think the majority of Canadians would say yes. Um, where I, I feel like the majority of Americans, which is, I think, shifting, but the majority of Americans would probably say no. Well, we know this because it hasn't happened, I guess. Um, but um, I, I really hope that that changes because I think the political landscape is going to change and that might make it politically possible for all of this to happen, right? Oh, absolutely. No, and I mean, and this plan is not on anybody's back except for Wall Street. So... If yeah. you're a, uh, a a Wall Street person and you may end up losing some money off of your shares, but I mean this this amount of money is is minuscule to the amount of money that's basically being traded on Wall Street every single day. So uh, there is no tax, you know, as far as for this uh, goes. And we actually bailed out Wall Street in the past, and that's what basically Bernie is saying here. And these other candidates they owe you. that no, no, not <laughs> just that they owe us, but that we've done it before for them. And that, yeah. and that why wouldn't you do it for 45 million people rather than just a specific, you know, companies or whatever it might be. Exactly. So I'm not sure if we solve student loan debt in the last 15 minutes, but you know, we're going to keep talking about it because we think we should and hopefully continue the conversation on, on Twitter because uh, the conversation has been pretty great. When we come back, we will have our good friend AJ Giuliani with us, so stay tuned. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. AJ Giuliani is the Director of Learning and Innovation at Centennial School District in Pennsylvania. He's an author, instructor, and speaker on design thinking, project-based learning, and a ton more. And he joins us on the podcast today. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, thanks for so much for having me on, guys. I'm excited to be here and, and talk shop and just uh, just get into it. So uh, Nice. Yeah, yeah. Have me. So, so we were talking just before we we pressed go that this actually this interview is the probably in the history this is the record for the in the books the longest. Uh, we were uh, in where where were we Edmonton? We were in Edmonton, yes. 
probably about five months ago in yeah. Edmonton. And I'm yeah. like, if we don't put this in the damn calendar now, it's not going to happen. So yeah. like, we're looking at each other's calendars and we book it right away and sitting at the bar in Edmonton booking dates so that we get it. We got it done. I love it. Little did we know the U S women would be uh, winning the yeah, world. Baby. Uh, <laughs> right. A couple minutes. So, let's go, yeah, man. Ser- serendipitous timing. So, for for a lot of folks, um, you know, that we speak to, they seem to all tell a really good story of kind of their moment, their aha moment in their careers. And it seems when you read your bio that your moment may have came somewhere around January 2012. And you talk about that a little bit. So tell us what led you to that point. Share a little bit about your background and what you started to do around January 2012 that changed everything and led you to today. Yeah, so I was like the worst student ever in the history of uh, <laughs> uh, I think the only reason I kept going throughout high school was uh, to play sports. The only reason I went to college was to play sports. And uh, I started my super sophomore year, which is like your third year in college for those mm-hmm. days, just a fun way to say it, uh, <laughs> by, by having a 1.6 GPA. And I uh, finally got my got my niche with with education. It took me five and a half years to graduate university, but I became a teacher, and I loved the whole act of getting students from their point A to their point B. Like I just like I just loved that that uh, part of it. Uh, but around 2011, that year when the school year started, I was struggling a lot as a teacher. I, the two two words I always used to describe myself were desperate and frustrated. Mm-hmm. I was uh, desperate to get kids engaged and get them motivated. And I was frustrated because whatever I tried to do, I couldn't get them engaged and motivated. And I was doing project-based learning. I was using technology. I mean, I feel like all of the buzzwords of what you're supposed to do to engage kids, I was doing that. And uh, it just wasn't happening. So I got called out by a friend. And uh, it was interesting that winter break, I kind of went down one of those like internet rabbit holes that we sometimes go down, right? And uh, I had watched the uh, TED Talk by Dan Pink uh, called The Surprising Truth About Motivation. And in it, he talks about all about intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic motivation. I just start clicking on the links and reading a bunch of stuff and start seeing how this whole idea of the 20% project at Google, where they gave their employees 20% of the time to work on whatever they're passionate about, just it just really spoke to me. And so January 2012 was when I gave my students, high school students, uh, grade 11, grade 9 students at that point in time, um, a chance to learn what they're interested in create something based on that interest, document the process, and I didn't grade them on it. And uh, after their heads exploded and they yelled at me for getting the project, it was all about choice, they really got into it. And for the first time in a long time, um, I saw students that were excited about learning, not excited about the grade. And so my aha moment um, was that I felt like I had found this secret sauce of engagement, this secret sauce of empowerment. And it was actually pretty simple. It was just giving students choice. And that choice led to ownership, and that ownership led to empowerment, and then empowerment most often to deeper learning experiences that I never could have had in my classroom otherwise. And so that was the moment. So AJ, uh, is this similar to Google's 20% time? Is that kind of what you, uh, you know, yeah. were trying to emulate in your class and tell us more about yeah. that. Yeah. So it was, it was basically just like Google's 20% time in the classroom and Google's 20% time. Basically they gave their engineers get paid a lot of money, uh, 20% of their time to work on whatever they're interested in. Mm-hmm. And, out of that 20% time came 50% of Google's products, Google Earth, Gmail, things that we use every single day. 
And, uh, you know, there's been like some arguments back and forth in the media. Does Google still do it? Do they not do it? I've, I've written about that a lot. But I think the idea behind it from Sergey Brin and Larry Page actually came from their Montessori upbringing. Hmm. They both were Montessori educated. And so yeah. their education led to this business practice that led to this education practice. And really, it's just 20% time genius hour, whatever you want to call it. It's just a fancy term for inquiry-based learning. Right, which we know has been successful for a very long time, which is the most natural way to learn. And um, you know, there's tons of research. People are always like, "Is there research on 20% time? Is there research on Genius Hour?" Yeah, just tons. look, at, just look at inquiry-based learning. There's <laughs> there's lots of it, right? Uh, there, yeah. There's lots of it out there. And so that is kind of, I think sometimes in education, you know, you have to rebrand stuff in terms of the terminology to make it stick. And uh, for me personally, that made it stick for me. But it, it really was just inquiry-based learning. So going on uh, again about 20% time, there's a lot of teachers that love the idea of doing this. And I've seen some people try. Yeah. And I'm sure that you, you're actually really good for this, providing resources and and places where people can go to learn more. If someone wanted to start, like, I, I don't even know where you would go to actually just get started doing. Is there some sort of a structure? Do you think that there's a model in place for how this works in kind of a night? I know that you can finesse it and massage it to meet your needs in your own classroom, but where would someone go to just get going on this? Yeah, I mean, I, I would go to GeniusHour.com. I think it has okay. a great amount of resources, has a free web, webinar that I've put on that are out there, lots, lots of different stuff. Um, but I would say that if you want to get started with it, it's inquiry-based learning. So if you yeah. inquiry cycle, if you use the scientific method, if you use the engineering design cycle, if you use design thinking, any of those are great structures to run this type of learning. The hard part, and I'll be honest with you, is if you're going from a traditional, I'm going to do teach from the textbook and give you a multiple choice test, and then boom, you jump right into 20% time or genius hour, you're going to struggle as a teacher and so your students are going to struggle. And so I think mm-hmm. scaffolding it, honestly, with like some project-based learning, some design uh, challenges, design sprints leading up to it, yeah. it is needed. And um, something I think people don't often talk about, but but for me, I think one of the biggest mistakes I made the following year, right? Like the following year, I did it one year and then I was like, this is awesome. The following year is I started off the year doing it and it was a train wreck. Mm. <laughs> like it was sure, an yeah. absolute disaster. My students weren't ready for it. I didn't know them yet. Like there was so many problems with it. And so um, I think really being able to, to kind of build up that almost kind of creative stamina. If I don't even know if that's a phrase, yeah. but like that creative stamina for, for doing this type of work is something that's really important because for students, especially older students, and it works a little bit better if you do it with younger students because they're still haven't got the curiosity kind of getting out of them. Uh, but for the older students who are just playing the game of school, it's really tough to just like yeah. switch that game of school. And it's like you're playing kickball and all of a sudden they're like, hey, uh, you're playing kickball, but here's the deal, right? Instead of kicking, <laughs> now I'm going to throw it. Mm-hmm. And instead, like, like you just change the game and the kids are like, what is going on? Uh, so for me, I, I think there's lots of good resources, but I would scaffold. Yes. You could find scaffolding stuff on GeniusHour.com or on my website uh, and then choose a structure. doesn't really matter what it is. It could be design thinking, it could be inquiry cycle, scientific method, but choose a structure of what that process is going to look like. Um, and then also just – I, I, it's so cliche, but I think one of the biggest pieces of it is you don't have to be successful at the end. Mm. The whole point is learning throughout the process. The process. 
not the final product being something that's amazing and going to be shared on, you know, CNN or five or something. Like that. It's, not, it's not that about that. It's about learning throughout the process. And I think that's sometimes what we miss. That's a huge mistake that we make often. I think in education, just, we want, we want it to be that big finale and prove it on the big finale instead of everything that leads up to that. Yeah. And I mean, and it's, it's something that as human beings, we have such a natural inclination to look at the final product and decide what the learning looked like based on the final product instead of looking at what learning actually occurred during during the actual process. I, I heard you uh, in Edmonton talking a lot about this. And this is, and actually, when we got on the podcast about a week later, I, I told Glenn how you were just blowing my mind because I, I did project based learning a lot. Uh, and I feel like I, after I've left the classroom now, I feel like I I missed something because I did not spend enough time talking about the process with with my students about uh, evaluating how they were doing the work and not what they did in the end and what the final result was. I'm I'm curious as as someone who feels like they they missed the boat on this but has a lot of questions about it for sure. Um, I'm curious in your experience how students responded to outcomes that did not produce a an ideal final result maybe where the the process was great everything worked really well in your mind from a from a um you know a learning perspective they were doing all of the the work really well but the end result wasn't what the students were expecting how how do you think students were in your experience how have students responded to stuff like that I think it takes a little bit for them to get um, an understanding of what that looks like, right? So uh, for students, especially older students, they honestly could care less about the process. They don't care about how they got that math answer. They care about the fact that they got the answer right, Mm -hmm. right? And so, um, you know, and that's in almost in every subject of of what that looks like. I honestly think it, it takes a while for them to understand that we really mean what we what we're saying. Because a lot of times, and I'll, I'll be the first one to admit, like as a teacher, I would say, like, I want to see this, but then I want to assess that, mm-hmm. right? So like, you know, and uh, look, we could say the same thing. Like, I remember like my superintendent coming back to school. Hey, I want you guys to be creative. I want you to be innovative. Now about those test scores, mm-hmm. right? So we're like we saying one thing, but then measuring and assessing is another thing. And I feel like that's the same thing in the classroom. For a long time, I would say, hey, I want you guys to fail. Right. It was like a catchphrase, fail forward. Hey, I want you to uh, take risks. Right. I want you to challenge yourself. I want you to get out of your uh, comfort zone. We say all these things and then we just grade how the end result is. Mm -hmm. Right. Exactly. And so for students, until they start to see that you actually are assessing and points are assessed of the process. And that's why, why we use the GRIT rubric. And the GRIT rubric was developed by the San Francisco College Track, and G stands for guts, R for resiliency, I for integrity, and T for tenacity. And uh, it, it basically was developed to say, no, no, we are going to actually assess your process. And so then you're going to care about that. And, and that's, I think, the hard thing for the students is until you actually assess it, and if their world is all about points being 
uh, given, then you need to give points to that process, right? You can't just kind of Catch break cold yeah. turkey. Yeah. Right. Right. And like it's that it's very like nice in theory to say like, well, we're just not going to grade anymore. And like that sounds amazing. And, you know, we're not going to give homework anymore. And that sounds amazing. But we live in this world, at least I do, where kids take the SAT and they take the ACT and where colleges still look at GPA and where that until the universities change their system of admissions, we're still going to care about that as high school and so on and so forth. And so I think like kind of meeting them halfway and saying, yeah, we are grading the process. Here's what the assessment looks like. And then doing that a couple of times, it's going to take uh, for them to kind of understand that. There's other people too. There's other students who are really good at playing the game of school, nice. right? And so they're great at, at having amazing final products. And so for them, that is also hard for, for them to, to make that jump. So AJ, you've written two books with another amazing educator, John Spencer, about yeah. project-based learning and student voice uh, and choice and design thinking. Can you talk about Empower, the book Empower and Launch, and maybe give folks who haven't read them the main themes of these books? Yeah. So um, for Launch, which John and I wrote first, we're basically saying, like, how can we take design thinking, this framework that has been popularized by Stanford D-School, IDEO, uh, that has been used by companies like Apple and Uber and Amazon, all these different kinds of companies. How can we take this, this creative process, which is what design thinking is a framework for, and how can we break that into a K through 12 lens, right? Because John and I have been using it for a long time, and we found that it was, it was tough sometimes to make it K-12 uh, kind of friendly. And so uh, launch is all about that. It's, it's very much a step-by-step guide. It's very hands-on, lots of examples, lots of um, you know takeaways for you. And then after we wrote launch, um, we, we kind of felt we're like, man, we, we missed the boat. We should have wrote a book before launch mm. that talked about the bigger picture of why this stuff is, is important. And uh, and so we're like, well, let's iterate, right? Which is kind of the whole process design thing. And we're like, Let, let's write Empower, which is kind of like um, the, basically the, the premise is that uh, school is very focused on compliance, right? Teacher tells you to do something, you do it. And depending on how well you do it, then you get a grade. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody in education talks about engagement. And engagement is really high attention and high commitment. But engagement is still driven by uh, the person who's in front of the classroom and the person who is kind of teaching lesson. And we're like, how can you move from compliance to engagement to empowerment? And empowering students is about giving them the skills or knowledge to pursue their passions, their future, their interests. And so that was kind of the whole premise behind Empower. And then uh, we put a lot of pictures in it. John's a great artist. And uh, we wanted to really write a book that you could read in a day. Like that was Definitely. honestly... It was like one of our goals, like Austin Cleon was somebody that uh, still like an artist, show your work. But we were like kind of, we want to write a book like that. It has a lot of pictures. You can read it in a day, totally understand the why, understand the how, and want to go forward into that. And we always say we, we feel like we should have written power first, but that's just life, yeah, right? Absolutely. <laughs> that's, just, that's just how things go. And so, yeah, the, those, those two books, I think for John and I, were very much – 
you know, John was an inner city teacher in uh, Phoenix and I had worked outside of Philadelphia for a long time. And then uh, we had both gotten different roles. He'd been a professor where he works with new teachers. Um, you know, I was working as an administrator and we're like, what does this look like? Not to just tell people like, here's why, but also the how. And, um, and so that was really the, the goal for, for both those books is, is to, uh, to lead teachers into a more practical place of how to do these things. So we're going to put um, links to Empower and Launch in the show notes. We're also going to, because this um, this grit rubric is what really blew my mind when you were speaking at Edmonton. We're going to put a link to that rubric in the show notes as well. Um, maybe just give uh, give our listeners a, a handle on what you have going on, where people can learn more from you. If you're speaking anywhere coming up soon, let us know uh, so that people can come in and seek you out. Um, how can people get in touch with you online yeah. as well? I'm speaking in a lot of places. You could see on my website at ajgiuliani.com. Just go to the speaking tab and you can see uh, where I'm talking. I'm actually working on a new book that I haven't talked about much. Uh, it's called Practice Doesn't Make Perfect. Oh, okay. uh, And it's all about this idea that when, when I have four young kids, I have a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, 5-year-old, a 3-year-old. And uh, I coach them in all kinds of sports. I coached football. I coached lacrosse, all these different types of things. And like when you want to get better at something – People are just like, ah, you got to practice. practice. Got to practice harder. Mm-hmm. Got to practice more. And uh, when you look at the research and you look at at basically the history of how to get better at something and how to perform at a high level, practice plays a part. Of course, it does, but it's not the only thing, right? Your environment is a big thing. Who you're around, who you're surrounding stuff, your your is a big thing. Um, the ownership and autonomy you have during the process is a really big thing, and also momentum is a huge thing. People don't get good at something unless they have received positive feedback. Mm. I'll give you guys I'll give you guys an example of this. You both do this this podcast on education, correct? Yes. <laughs> That's what I hear. And here's my here's my honest question. Would you still be doing this podcast today in July 2019 if your first 20 episodes came out and one or two people listened to it? Yeah. Probably not. And the, <laughs> no, it's a good question. It's probably not. Mm-hmm. Right. That's how most people feel when they start a creative endeavor or they're practicing something new or they're trying something new. You actually don't stick with things unless you get some sort of positive feedback. Mm -hmm. If you're playing a video game, you can get that positive feedback from the game itself. Yes. Right. Uh, But in lots of other things, you have to get that positive feedback from other people. Right. In order to kind of say, I should keep on doing this. When I first started out blogging, I wouldn't have kept on blogging. I wouldn't have written books. I wouldn't have done anything unless I wrote a blog post that just went viral magically and gave me that positive feedback to continue writing and doing that stuff. And so mm-hmm. this book, um, Practice Doesn't Make Perfect, is is education, but it's also a bigger picture book, kind of that. general fiction uh, that's really focused on just how to learn and perform better and really not just what the research says, but also kind of what – uh, a lot of the history says around that around that process. So I'm deep in the weeds mm-hmm. of, of researching that. If you if you look like I'm looking at my desk right now, and <laughs> the books that I have in front of me that I'm reading are like The Practicing Mind by Tom Sterner, Wolfpack by Abby Wambach, mm-hmm. Coming Up by Pat Summit, Town Is Overrated by Jeff Colvin, Right Peak by Anders Ericsson, When Pride Still Mattered, uh, which is the story of Vince Lombardi. So like these are the things that I'm reading and kind of like burying myself in as I'm writing this book. And uh, it's going to be different. 
it's going to be, you know, uh, a little bit different than I think a lot of the books out there, but I'm, I'm really excited about that project. And that's what I'm, what's I'm, I'm deep in right now. <laughs> and I'm writing about a lot of that stuff on ajjulani.com. I'm getting ready to release a uh, free course called the science of learning theory to practice, which is kind of all about these things that I've been learning. And so that's what I'm geeking out about right now. <laughs> It's fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us, AJ. Uh, it's been awesome. Thank you. Thanks, guys, so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Keep doing what you're doing. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Mike Washburn. My co-host is Glenn Irvin. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Glenn is at Irv Spanish on Twitter. I can be found on Twitter at Mr. Washburn. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we'd be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or on the Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Classcraft, for supporting us. Check out classcraft.com slash oneducation to learn more about them. Thanks, as always, for listening. Stay awesome. See you soon.